Welcome to the War in Ukraine Update from Kyiv podcast. Updates, analysis, and deep dives into warfighting, strategy, and leadership. I'm Jessica Ganawa, a lecturer in international relations at Flinders University in Australia, and I'm talking today with Aviar Pastanak and Zosha Stemplaska. Aviar is Associate Professor in Political Theory at University College London and focuses in her work on the relationship between state and citizen responsibility for state actions. Zosha is Professor of Political Theory at Oxford University and Zosha focuses on issues of responsibility and justice, including in a post-war context. Aviar and Zosha recently co-wrote a really interesting article that I'll link to in the show notes that explores this kind of complex and difficult issue of whether the current sanctions being imposed on Russia are justified in light of the probable flow-on costs that will emerge from that for Russian domestic populations, but then also keeping in mind the fact that those sanctions are being imposed because the Russian state is waging a brutal military campaign or a brutal war against another sovereign state. So I look forward to diving into some of these issues on the podcast today. Thanks so much for joining me, Aviar and Zosha. Thank you for inviting us. If we just zoom out a little bit and look at this issue from a more general stance, should citizens incur costs for the actions, behaviour and decisions of their political leaders? Thank you, Jessica. And Thanks for inviting us to talk about these questions. So I think the question that you just asked is really one of the most important questions in political philosophy. And the reason it's so important is that it really goes to the very heart of the relationship that exists between citizens and their government. Now, I want to start by pointing out that as a matter of practice, we actually all the time incur the costs of what our governments are doing in our name. So just to give one very recent example from the news, so the UK government just recently awarded compensation to people who had received infected blood transfusions because of poor management by the UK health service. Now, obviously the blunder was a blunder of people in the government, but the compensation was paid using taxpayers' money. So what's the problem with it? Or what are the ethical or moral difficulties that arise from it? And the problem, as we see it, is that ordinary citizens actually often have very little to do with the bad things that, poly- that the governments have done. Sometimes we don't even know about the fact that the governments have done something bad until after the fact. And uh, sometimes we do know, but we do everything that we can to protest against it, so to resist it. So given all that, it kind of seems counterintuitive that even the people who did what they can or didn't know or prevented from knowing still end up kind of with the bill at the end of the day. And so just to add, as a sort of Mm -hmm. preview, there are these really complicated cases and then there are simpler cases and the considerations that matter and that do justify sometimes imposing burdens on citizens for the actions of the governments or the states to do with the causal contribution, to do with the support of these actions, or if they benefit from those actions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. I can imagine that there are a lot of factors that come into play. And one of those that I'm thinking about, how do we consider the difference in regime type when we're looking at these issues? 
That's a great question. And as Zosha has already suggested, obviously, there will be a lot of factors that affect um, whether or not we should be held responsible or whether we want to say, no, it's the government and the people in the government that should be paying the price, right? So we really need to look at the various, at the context and the various factors. And one of the most dominant factors is, of course, the regime type. It is not an uncommon view to think that it is easier to justify citizens, all citizens paying the price in democratic states. And the reason here are various. So some people point to the fact that citizens have a chance to elect their leaders. And some people point to the fact that citizens actually have an ability to change the policies. So if they don't change the policies, well, they, they should share in the price, in the cost. So all these reasons seem to suggest that in democracies, the answer is more simple. I don't share that view fully. In a recent book that I wrote, I suggest that even in democracies, the problem is quite is more co- is more complex than that. But I'm going to put that to the side because the topic of conversation today, of course, is not a democratic state. So if we move on to highly oppressive regime like uh, Russia, here the challenge is really much more difficult. And the two things that I think make it the most difficult are, first of all, that often citizens in oppressive regimes really have much less access to information about what their governments are doing, and even they're subject to deception and manipulation. And of course, we see that currently in the way that the Russian propaganda impacts the access to information that ordinary Russian citizens have about what their government is doing. And the other thing, of course, is that we might say, well, you know, Russians are not doing enough about it. But of course, doing about, doing something about it needs to be action that is not too costly for you. And given the draconian rules that uh, Russian citizens are now facing, should they protest the, the government's policies, mean that the fact that they're not showing, not protesting out loud doesn't necessarily mean that they agree with what's going on. That's right. We take the mm-hmm. objections really seriously, and then we still show that Sanctions can be justified. The two types of considerations that Via mentioned that people worry about when it comes to authoritarian regimes, the considerations of sort of brainwashing or lack of access to information, and the consideration of sort of lack of choice or control are not necessarily decisive in general, because you might say about brainwashing that actions that you commit if you do them willingly as such that you still bear liability for them if you harm others. We can think of an illustration of another war. There are clearly a lot of people who were brainwashed into supporting the Nazis, but if they contributed to the horrific crimes of the Nazis by willingly supporting what they did, even though they were brainwashed, then they do end up with liability. And we can also say about this lack of control and lack of choice that it cannot also fully necessarily in all circumstances excuse you if you still nonetheless cause harm to others. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting and sort of raises some quite deep questions about like human agency and, and freedom and responsibility for our actions under any circumstances or any conditions. Looking at the sanctions that have been imposed on Russia. And of course, there were already some sanctions imposed on Russia prior to the full-scale invasion on the 24th of February this year, post-Russia's incursions into Ukrainian territory in 2014. But since the 24th of February this year, we've seen a much more far-reaching host of sanctions that have been imposed. And we do get 
this issue that comes up when we're looking at sanctions where commentators will say, well, you know, you can't ensure that you're really punishing the right people or you can't ensure that those are actually going to impose costs on Putin himself, on political elites in Russia, on economic elites in Russia, and you might end up just creating a whole population that feels punished by those sanctions. On the other hand, when a state is engaging in a brutal war, what options are available or like what are we supposed to do is always the the question that comes to my mind. How should we look at this issue of whether those sanctions are actually justified on Russia, given that they might incur costs on the general Russian population? So you're absolutely right um, in the picture that you offer and sort of the slogan from us is that on the whole, the sanctions are justified, that there are limits, the humanitarian considerations in play as well. And so, for example, we do support pharmaceutical exemptions. Nonetheless, we do think that even ordinary citizens in Russia have a duty to bear cost if that gives us a reasonable chance of stopping this lethal violence. And there's sort of two, I guess, two main justifications here. Before we dive into the justification, that's just to add that it's very important, we think, to continue and do these assessments as the sanctions go on. So the cost of the sanctions and their impact changes as the process continues. And of course, what we might, what we, if we think that today at this point that the sanctions are are justified. This does not mean that any sanctions are justified now or in the future, or that the pictures wouldn't change in light of, for example, two serious costs that fall on Russian citizens and so on and so forth. So the assessment is one that is responsive to, to real-life events and to the, to the process on the ground. But I think now we can turn to think about the, the actual justifications that we think apply to this specific case. The first justification that, that we think plays a role here is actually very simple. This justification rests on the assumption that the sanctions do have a potential to have a real impact on Russia's activities on the ground. Maybe they can lead to full withdrawal. Maybe they could lead to the restriction of the mass killings of civilians on the ground. So, But they can have impact of you know, stopping at least some forms of very serious human rights violations and crimes against humanity that Russia is currently committing. Now, if that claim is correct, then we do think that Russian citizens may just have the basic humanitarian duties to take upon themselves that burden, or at least some burdens that result from the sanctions. So by the idea of basic humanitarian duties, we just mean the duties that follow of us as, as human beings, just as a matter of, let's call it human decency. The Australian philosopher, Peter Singer, gives us that very famous example of a person that on her way to a very important meeting, but she happens to see a child that is drowning in a shallow pond. Now, clearly, we, all of us think that that person has a duty to save that child from the shallow pond, pond even if it means that she's going to ruin her expensive suit and even if it means that she's going to miss a very important meet, uh, meeting. So even if there are some serious costs to her, and it's just what human decency requires, right? There's no real ethical challenge here. So now let's go back to the case of the sanctions. So based on the very same logic, we think that you can say that ordinary Russians can have the same kind of basic humanitarian duties to Ukraine, Ukrainians, a very serious harm against Ukrainian citizens can be stopped. 
But stopping it involves some costs to Russian citizens, financial losses, inconveniences, and so on and so forth. In the same way that that person had to kind of incur the cost to save the child, we might say that Russian citizens have a duty to incur some costs if that means that a very serious harm is going to be prevented. We think it's a very powerful argument, but there is some limit to it that says that the, the conversation will not stop here. The costs that we might be expected to accept on ourselves just in order to save others are not very high. To in- incur this extra burden, we need another argument. Just to add to the humanitarian one briefly, and to emphasize that it's not just Russian citizens that would have to bear such costs. So in one of your podcasts where you introduce yourself, you mention how your reaction to the invasion has been to think that in some sense it's you know your war and I had the exact same reaction and I think everyone should have the reaction to any war of invasion that it's our war because we all have duties to help people who suffer as a result. Mm -hmm. So what is that additional explanation then or that additional justification for why costs could be imposed on a population or why that could be justified? There are higher costs that Russian citizens will be required to bear. And that goes to this other justification, which relates to what it means for us to keep cooperating with Russia when these things are going on. So we often think of sanctions as punishment, but really quite a lot of sanctions are not necessarily best understood this way. So if you think about shopping in a shop and you decide to start shopping in a different shop, there is an impact on the shop in which you no longer buy goods, but we don't normally think of it as a punishment. We think that you have the right to start shopping elsewhere. And if you find out that the shop in which you used to buy goods is laundering money or supporting lethal violence, then we might think you not only have the right to stop shopping there, but you have a duty if you can to stop shopping there. And that will apply to a whole host of actions that we can take towards Russian Federation because the regime is sponsoring lethal violence and it is also engaging in stealing from its own citizens. And we have a right not to cooperate with such a regime. And given what the regime is doing, we have a duty, if we can, to not cooperate with it, i.e. not buy the gas and oil, if we can. And that is the case even if there is an impact on people who live there. Just as in the case of the shop, we would think you have a duty not to buy in this shop, even if it means that some sales assistants might lose their jobs. And so it's thinking about it as a right and duty not to cooperate with this type of regime that gets us towards this justification for the imposition of burdens. Mm -hmm. I guess I want to go back to something that we touched on earlier and at the risk of wading into a whole other very complicated domain. From all reports, 
there's relatively high support for the war in Russia amongst general domestic populations, or let's say the special military operation as Putin's regime has presented it to the people. So they might not be exactly supporting the same thing that we're seeing in terms of the war due to that very highly controlled information environment and the way that's being presented. But from all accounts, a large proportion of the population does feel in some ways that whatever Putin is doing must be in the best interests of Russia, must be justified, maybe even feel that Russia has some right to some sort of territorial incursions into Ukraine. So that seems to make the picture a bit more complicated. Like we've been talking about authoritarian regimes as if the leader is somehow separated from the people and maybe it's obvious that most of the people do not support their actions or do not support a war, for example. How should we consider that if we think about the fact that it could be that actually many domestic Russian populations, they might be supporting, as I said, something slightly different to what we're seeing, but are supportive, generally speaking, of what's happening. I think that that here, I think there's two levels that we, we might want to address this issue. The first question is to what extent we think that the Russian citizens who express support in the war are indeed doing this willingly. We should be very wary here. Right. Because, again, we should remember that what we see on the face of it is not necessarily what's actually happening in reality. In my work, I tend to be on a cautious side here, having looked at the way that some oppressive regimes manipulate their populations. I haven't looked specifically at Russia, but having looked, for example, at the way that the Iraqi Saddam Hussein regime was manipulating its population during uh, the invasion to Kuwait that also led to a sanctions regime on Iraq, I remain quite wary. Even though there are lots of kind of, you know, outward expression of support of the regime, we should treat them as genuine ones. And in my own view, I believe that if people are forced to contribute or man- seriously manipulated into contributing and supporting a bad policy, they shouldn't be held liable for it, expected to pay the cost for it just by virtue of that support. But not everybody agrees with me. This points to a deeper debate about the responsibilities that flow from our causal contributions to wrongs in the world. Mm -hmm. Some people think that even if your contribution is forced, it is still very bad to find yourself in a position where you facilitate harm to others, wrongful harm to others. We really, as moral agents, don't want to be in that position. And we should be willing to pay some costs in order to avoid being in that position, even if we are forced against our will to be part of it. Mm-hmm. So just to add, uh, so just the mere fact that you are ignorant wouldn't necessarily excuse you because the ignorance itself could be unreasonable or could be some willful blindness. So it is also the case that when it's costly for you morally to find out what you may be contributing to, given where you find yourself geographically, you may avoid information that will reveal to you what you are part of. And it's an important question whether that type of avoidance is itself justified or whether, in fact, one of the duties that you owe to people who suffer as a result of where you are based and what your state is doing, even if you cannot make any material difference to their condition, is to become aware of 
what it is that they're suffering. Mm -hmm. I think oftentimes as humans, we might have this slightly uneasy feeling like we're not getting the full truth or we're not getting the whole story, but in some ways it could be easier or more convenient to believe the story that puts ourselves or our country in a better light. And when we look at Russia and Russian domestic populations, there have been many people who've also been protesting, at least in the early days. Of course, the costs for that are quite high. So we know there's some proportion of the population that not only doesn't support, but is choosing to seek out additional information. But I know that also there can be a kind of a cultural atmosphere that can build up, particularly when you have a very tightly controlled information environment where you can get a large proportion of the population kind of choosing to believe that what is happening is justified and may not view it differently until many years after the conclusion of, you know, whatever we see as the ending to this current war. Listeners might say, well, this is just so complex, though, you know, there's arguments to here and there's arguments to there and there are facts and there are disagreements. Should we just ditch morality if it's so complex? We think that the answer to that question is, is no. Every action that we do in this case and in other cases involves some moral risk. Imposing sanctions involves the risk that we will be harming people who shouldn't be harmed. Not imposing sanctions also involves the risk that will be exonerating people who actually have a duty to incur this cost and that we will actually be failing to assist people who are facing very, very serious harms. So all we can do as moral agents is trying to articulate to ourselves where do we think the moral risk is lower or the risk of doing moral harm is higher. And we believe that through deliberation, through reflection, through exa serious examination of the evidence and of our moral principles, we can actually recommend a better course of action or reduce the risk that we will do harm. And that's why this kind of discussion is very important. Mm -hmm. Until now, we've talked about the imposition of sanctions and is the imposition of sanctions justified, but we haven't really discussed how do we know if we're actually achieving some kind of success? How do we know if those sanctions are being effective? Now, it could be that just the imposition itself, if it's justified, needs to take place in any case, but, you know, we are trying to achieve a certain objective with the imposition of those sanctions. So. How can we tell if sanctions are being effective? Our view is that we should use sanctions if there is a reasonable chance of success. So that chance matters. Is that some people are really critical of sanctions because they say, say sanctions often fail. It's a bit like saying you should not open a business because businesses often fail. So at this level of generality, it's just not very helpful. There are clearly things that could be done to make businesses more likely to succeed. And similarly, there are things that could be done to make sanctions more likely to succeed. So mm -hmm. half-hearted sanctions are more likely to fail. That's not a reason to abandon sanctions when there is a chance that they may succeed. It's a reason to design them better. And this is what the Ukrainian government has been arguing for. We need to have well-designed sanctions rather than sanctions for sanctions' sake. So Avia already mentioned that this is an ongoing process and that you have to be uh, alert to the differences on the ground. But the two core mechanisms through which sanctions are supposed to work, first through 
direct impact on Russia's ability to conduct the war. And that may be because they limit the ability for Russia to finance the war or because they limit access to technologies that are necessary for advanced weapons. And then the other core mechanism is through incentivizing the government of Putin in this instance. And I think that may have been the initial hope which has proven to have been possibly misplaced through encouraging protests in Russia. It doesn't seem like this is the main route to success or because it's supposed to incentivize the actions of Putin, either because he wants to avoid sanctions in some domains or because he wants sanctions to be lifted. Later on, they can also act as something that can be offered in negotiations. Perhaps it's worth adding here that we recognize, I think, that the way that the, the sanctions that are proposed is going to impact directly Russia's policy on the ground is open to debate and questions. Right, then mm. it's not entirely clear how would that work currently from where we are now standing. So Zosha focused her answer on the immediate kind of goals on the ground. Will Russia remove its forces? Will the abuse of human rights stop? But I just want to highlight another set of goals that we might also want to bring into the equations. So, and these are goals, uh, you might call the more symbolic goals or more long-term goals. So imposing sanctions on a rogue regime like uh, Russia sends an important message. It sends an important message to democratic publics in the sanctioning countries. It sends an important message to other rogue states who might be considering of doing human rights violations, but will have a second thought about it. And it also sends a very important message to the Ukrainian citizens themselves who have been calling for these sanctions. Mm-hmm. and who sees through them an expression of solidarity, which might be actually crucial for their own ability to continue and resist the Russian invasion, and which is so important for the outcome of the war on the ground. And similarly, not sanctioning also sends a very important message to would-be violators and a very important message to Ukrainian citizens about what we are willing to do on their behalf. So there's more things at stake here than just the behavior of Russia which will also matter for how we assess the success of these sanctions. Mm -hmm. Taking into account what Ukraine is calling for seems like a very important part. And also when we're looking at sanctions, we do need to consider the function of time. And when there's something like a war, we want perhaps a very decisive intervention that will take place quickly. But I have no doubt that with the extent of sanctions that have been imposed on Russia, that they will impact the way in which Russia is able to continue with its military campaigns. I have no doubt that there are a whole lot of flow on effects in terms of being able to develop military hardware and also the general atmosphere amongst political and economic elites in Russia that we possibly will never know the full extent of the knock-on effects of that and how that's then impacted the way in which Russia, actually the extent to which they're waging that war on the ground. Thank you so much, Zosha and Aviar. I found this conversation really interesting. It's probably in some ways raised questions for me as well as providing some answers but I've found the entire discussion very thought-provoking and I appreciate you both joining me on the podcast today. Thank you very much it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much.
Thanks for listening. And thanks to Mr. Smith for our theme music.